Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, this is Christopher Faroba, CEO of firmsconsulting.com and strategytraining.com. Welcome to another great session. We are here with Taraj Poran, such a beautiful name. Taraj is a veteran Silicon Valley dealmaker. He has sat at almost every seat around the table in Silicon Valley since late 1990s. Imagine the level of experience and has decades long unique experience involving hundreds of m transactions, strategic partnerships, and venture capital investments totaling billions of dollars in aggregate value. He's currently the chief operating officer at Surf Robotics, which he helped spin out of Uber. Such an amazing story. Looking forward to learn more about those adorable robots you have on sidewalks. And Taraj is also a graduate of the Yale Law School and Stanford University. Welcome, Taraj. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Chris, for the kind introduction and for having me. Yes, looking forward to this conversation. Taraj, to begin with, could you share with us your backstory? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, I won't go too far back, but maybe start at a place where, um, uh, you know, I was uh, introduced to this country. Um, so um, I'm a first generation immigrant. Uh, my family moved to the Southern California after bouncing around the world uh, in a few different countries um, in the late 80s. I went to high school in the US and I sort of immediately realized uh, as someone who had very little money uh, as a first generation immigrant that in order to get ahead here, I needed to have a pretty decent education. So I studied really hard uh, and uh, tried to get into the best colleges that I could get into. I applied to, you know, I, I found one of these US News World Report rankings and I kind of picked uh, all the top on the list. Uh, applied. And luckily, I got accepted by Stanford. Uh, I think they saw something in me that uh, resonated with who they were looking for. And I, I count my lucky, uh, lucky stars for that opportunity. I uh, loved Stanford University. So I uh, uh, spent four years there studying economics and philosophy. I wanted to balance the practical and the impractical. Uh, you, you choose which one is the more practical one. I, I would actually tell people that philosophy turned out to be the more practical one. Uh, <laughs> and I followed that with law school. Um, again, as an immigrant, I, I kind of thought that this is a country based on laws. And so oh, if I want to succeed here, I better know the laws. And uh, I got to go to law school again picked my uh, US News World rank, ranking, World Report rankings and uh, Yale was on top of that. And I kind of went through the top 10 and applied to all of them. Luckily, again, I got uh, accepted to my uh, first choice um, and had a blast at Yale Law School. Um, and I went to law school without a real appreciation of what the practice of law was like. I had an intellectual appreciation of what lawyers did and the legal system. And I, I just love the fact that this country is based on laws. Um, it's so comforting coming from, for instance, Middle East, where <laughs> things tend to be different. Um, and uh, I just didn't really know what the practice of law was like. I knew based on my experience at Stanford that I love Silicon Valley. I, I love being close to uh, the energy, the innovation, all the things that were happening in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So I, I had it in my mind that I wanted to come back to the Bay Area. So as soon as uh, you know, law school finished, I came and worked at a law firm, one of the um, prominent law firms here in the Valley uh, called Wilson Sansini um, that represents startups from their formation 
through all the stages of their life cycle, including IPO and acquisitions. And I kind of immersed myself kind of in the deal making uh, right off the bat. And it was late 90s. So there was a lot of activity. So uh, fertile grounds for learning and also for burnout. <laughs> uh, so after nine months, actually, I, I realized that this was not um, what I thought practicing law would be. And I wanted to be a little closer to the actual business of innovation. I have tremendous respect for lawyers and folks who do that. Um, but I just didn't see a personality fit with me and where I wanted to be. So then I uh, sort of applied to a bunch of different places. I, I, I'd, I'd seen that venture capitalists were doing really cool stuff. So I kind of networked my way to get a job at a venture capital firm. Um, and again, uh, through a whole bunch of serendipity and co lucky coincidences through the Stanford Alumni Network, I, I got a job at the European venture capital firm that wanted to open an office here in the US in Palo Alto. And they were looking for someone kind of with, with my similar background. Um, uh, and uh, so that sort of became my first real introduction to business. I, I almost kind of think of it as getting an MBA, but I got paid for it. <laughs> um, and you learn a lot as a venture capitalist. Um, you analyze a number of business plans and uh, you talk to a lot of smart entrepreneurs and you try to see, you know, try to predict the future a little bit uh, through the uh, view of the entrepreneurs, of course. Um, learned a lot. Um, unfortunately, um, the early 2000s uh, were not the most active uh, times for venture capital in the US, at least not from a, a return on investment perspective. So the firm that I worked with um, decided to actually pull back from the US and redouble their investment efforts in Europe. Um, after that, I had a bit of a crisis of confidence. I was worried that I may have made the wrong decision throwing away the uh, all the legal education. And so I went back to, to law. So I, uh, I went back and started practicing corporate law again and spent two years this time instead of nine months. And again, I realized, you know what? My heart and passion is really in entrepreneurship. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't which law firm I worked for, but it was the real, the actual practice of law that didn't quite resonate with who I wanted to be. So this time I left law for good and I started my own company so that I got enough courage uh, and uh, support to uh, uh, bring this idea I had, which was how do we bridge uh, communications on the web with communications on the phones? And this was in the prehistoric pre-iPhone era uh, where if you had to uh, make a phone call, you could go broke, especially if it was long distance. Sending text messages actually cost per text message. But we realized that if you bring, um, uh, and by we, I mean me and my technical co-founder, who, who was an expert in telecom, telecommunications, uh, our, our thought was that if we transport those packets, the voice and text packets over the internet, we could bypass all the toll charges, all the expensive uh, gates that the phone companies were putting in front of you. Because you know, things can travel over the web pretty much for free. And that's what Skype did in those days on the, on the desktop uh, computers. So we, we had that idea. We were not the only one apparently who had that idea. Actually, four more startups formed in the same year, 2005, doing similar things as we did. Um, but that startup's name was Jackster. It got traction rapidly. We got a lot of venture capital money. Um, top tier investors were so lucky to have them involved with us. Um, grew very fast and virally because communications, if you have a communications tool, it's viral. Now for those days, going from zero to 10 million users in one year after launch was a massive accomplishment. And, and so we got a lot of awards. We were, were pretty uh, uh, excited and uh, I would say uh, arrogant <laughs> uh, based on our success, early successes. So we kind of put our heads down and focused on execution and kind of ignored a little bit of the external realities and things that we'll probably come back to. But that came uh, in, in four years to 
haunt us. So we hit the 2008-2009 downturn, uh, the Great Recession, which is not unlike what we are going through today. Uh, the stock market crashed. Uh, uh, you know, everybody VCs weren't investing anymore, and uh, we were faced with a situation where we had to quickly figure out what to do. And we were grow, grow, grow. Uh, that was our priority. And now make money, make money, make money had become the, the mantra of the day. And uh, we hadn't been paying too much attention to that, to be honest. So uh, it takes time to tweak your funnels and to iterate and to find out a way to profitably acquire customers and also uh, convert free to paid customers, all that. And we just didn't have enough time for that. And meanwhile, we were like burning cash and didn't have many strategic options. We didn't have any real viable acquirers. So we had to do a fire sale in 2009. Uh, we basically sold the company for pennies on the dollar, if that. And so that was a very hard lesson learned. <laughs> but then I kind of um, took those lessons and uh, um, didn't repeat them in my next startups and had much better successes. Uh, uh, and uh, been since been uh, both an entrepreneur as well as uh, investor, angel investor. Also, through uh, I mentor a number of uh, entrepreneurs through a, a early stage fund that I've been involved with from the beginning called Pair VC, um, uh, and also uh, spent seven years on the acquirer side at GoDaddy. Um, so kind of, I'd never had that experience from the big company side. So went through an IPO with GoDaddy, uh, did a number of acquisitions, led basically strategy and partnerships for a number of our businesses at GoDaddy. Um, and then you mentioned I'm the CEO of Serve Robotics. This is my latest gig, actually the, the one that I'm most excited about, um, which is an autonomous robotics company. And uh, I've been there for the past 18 months since we spun out of Uber. And we can talk about that more detail, but I'll take a pause here. Taraj, thank you for this amazing story. You have such an, a unique set of experiences, which makes your skill set much more powerful than what is average. And, and they are so diverse as well. If you look back at your time as a lawyer and um, as an entrepreneur and then also as an investor, what do you feel are some of the key things that you apply to your day-to-day -day versus people who don't have this kind of experiences? Do you feel that you have certain insights and ways to look at the world that separates you because of your journey? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and you know, one thing that I, when I reflect kind of like, over the past 20 years and I kind of see where I started from and what I know now, what would I have done differently kind of uh, uh, mindset. There's one thread that kind of goes through it all, which is the importance of relationships. It's something that as I grew more and more uh, as an individual, as an entrepreneur, as a business person, I got to appreciate a lot more. It was definitely not at all emphasized in law school. <laughs> uh, law school was a lot more about the importance of words rather than importance of relationships. Um, but what I got to understand, and then when I was at uh, the VC firm I mentioned, Early Bird, um, uh, the first business experience I had in the beginning, I also was too, now from words, I went to numbers. I was so focused on numbers that I uh, missed the real place where value is created. And that is actually the relationship, the human relationships. You know, at, at the end of the day, entities and companies don't do transactions. It's the people that do. And uh, that was something that to me came with experience and uh, having also seen a lot of other people that are that are successful entrepreneurs or successful investors. And, and the kind of the, 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 the common thread among them seems to be the fact that there are amazing relationship builders and networkers. So that was, you know, if you were to say, what is that one lesson that you learned, that, that would be it. 
So there are two types of people, people who have to repeat their mistake many times. I, I believe one of the driving reasons for that is because they focus on regretting and in some cases even blaming what went wrong and who was at fault versus learning from it kind of and, and thinking, how is it happening for me? What can I learn from it? And how did it make me stronger and more equipped to be a better performer going forward? And so I know that when you had that fire sale of JaxTR, you then went into another startup, which is Webs, and you actually did things very differently there. And it's also connected to your recent book. So maybe let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, I guess to, to make a mistake is human, but to repeat the same mistake is probably foolish. Uh, we, we are, we're always going to make mistakes, right? So um, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a, just a matter of, uh, is it going to be the same mistakes that you're going to make or are you going to make new mistakes? And I feel like those entrepreneurs that succeed, they have a very experimental mindset about how they go about anything in their lives. And they see everything as an experiment. It's like, okay, well, that failed. That was an experiment that failed. Let's see uh, what, what went wrong. And there are things that are within our control. There are things with, that are external to us. And so we have to kind of uh, be accountable and hold ourselves accountable for what is within our control. So as you said, deflecting blame is definitely a, a surefire way to repeat the same mistake. Um, and so, um, yeah, we're, you know, uh, and it, it's always a combination, right? Even with Jackster, for instance, um, yes, we could blame it on the recession and the stock market and things that we had no way of controlling. So we could easily say, well, look, we were a victim to that. But then when you realistically look at it and look at like three other companies that started at the same time doing similar things and they all had successful exits and acquisitions, then you're like saying, okay, well, you know, you can't fully blame the external market either. There is something going on here because why didn't the market apply to those guys and just us, right? Um, so, and that's kind of the, it, it took me about six months to um, step back and lick my wounds and uh, sort of regroup and realize, okay, what did we do wrong? And I think one pivotal decision at Jackster um, that we made very early on was that we would not focus on any distribution partnerships. We would not focus on any potential acquisition or exits. Uh, we are going for an IPO. We have it figured out. We have viral growth. We have users. We have VCs chasing us. Why should we waste our time with anything else? So that was a key decision as a management team that we made. And I was a part of that and I, I signed up for it. Um, and that was a mistake, right? In hindsight, that was a mistake uh, because that didn't account for things that are out of our control. And we didn't build in an insurance policy against those. So the next startup I went to, my first uh, uh, focus was, okay, let's not make the same mistake again. I actually gathered the leadership in an offsite. And I said, look, um, I know things are going great. Everybody's happy right now, but let's think about where we wanna be uh, when we grow up. <laughs> what does success really look like for us? And um, uh, let's define that for ourselves. And then knowing that you know, IPOs are very rare and it's a lot more likely that startups go out of business, what are some potential strategic exit opportunities that we could have who would be on our wish list of potential acquirers and why would they be on that wish list let's talk about that how would we prioritize among them so that kind of gets everyone kind of thinking about okay well how do we really seriously think about a strategy of appealing to those acquirers and how would they see us and then once we had that framework and that uh, rough plan in in mind then, you know, we said, you know, we don't have to sell today, tomorrow, next year even, but let's have this in the back of our minds and take steps to get to know these potential acquirers, build relationships with them in case ever there is ever an opportunity. We have that option. Again, we never have to sell, 
but uh, because we were we were cash flow break even, we, we were in that enviable position, right? As a startup, you know, once you hit that point, it's 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 an amazing relief because you're not in danger of immediately going out of business. But most missionary entrepreneurs, they care about the mission. They care about you know seeing uh, what they have built to grow as much as possible, to be in the hands of as many people as possible, to have the most impact that it can have. And a lot of times that is only possible with the resources uh, of a bigger company. Um, and that's where acquisitions make a lot of sense. So, so we had that, we built those relationships um, and lo and behold, two years later, um, we were in the lucky position that we're looking at either raising another round of financing to really grow, which would entail a lot of dilution and also uh, even a longer horizon to liquidity for people who had joined early on. The company was at that point almost 10 years old or uh, pursue one of these strategic options. And so when one of the strategics made us an offer that we couldn't refuse, um, we agreed to tie the knot with them. Uh, and it was a great outcome for the founders, for employees, for investors. We had only raised uh, around $10 million and we sold for over a hundred. So it, it was a great outcome for all involved. And I attribute a lot of that to that fateful strategy session that we had in an offsite, actually away from the company. Uh, we took a weekend trip and uh, uh, I'm so glad we did it. At the time, it seemed like a luxury uh, it seemed like something we couldn't afford to do, but we did it anyway. And it paid back huge dividends. So I took those lessons, you know, the juxtaposition, the, these radically different outcomes between Jackster and Webs, uh, and then also a lot of other lessons from other entrepreneurs that have been lucky enough to be a part of their journey as a mentor or as an investor, um, or even read about them or hear about them on podcasts like yours. Um, and I've assembled those lessons into this book that you just mentioned. It's called Exit Path. And uh, it, it took me five years to write it. Uh, um, and uh, hopefully uh, your uh, listeners will find it useful because it not only talks about what it takes to sell a company uh, to be on that exit path, but when should you start, which, you know, uh, spoiler alert, you should start it right away, no matter what, <laughs> where you are in your life cycle of your startup. And um, also, uh, it talks about how to build relationships, which is that core tenet of successful entrepreneurship, I believe. So how do you build those relationships? What are the steps you can take? And, and how, how does an introvert like me do it? Because, you know, it's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. And I think there's a lot of introverts out there um, for whom relationship building and networking, maybe it's even a... a, a something that is a taboo or they don't want to they don't want to approach it and i i used to have my own reservations about it i i felt networking was for opportunists not for real entrepreneurs but again i've ch i've changed my mind and uh hopefully my book will help a lot of other people change theirs too Tarash, many of my clients they're in the position where where they are quite successful in their careers large company they're at relatively senior level, but they're starting to realize that they actually want to be an entrepreneur. And you actually made that transition. You, you worked for someone else and then you went and became an entrepreneur. You went into it. It's not like you did something on the side for years and then... I went all in, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I put all my eggs in one basket. <laughs> exactly. So Taraj, what I wanted to ask you is, do you have advice for listeners and viewers who are currently listening to our conversation and they're in a position where they're thinking about starting their own business or starting a startup with a group of friends, what advice would you give them about that transition? Yes. Um, uh, you know, I have a few. Um, I would start by saying that um, before you make the jump, uh, so to speak, uh, uh, you sort of really step back and uh, evaluate some of the mega trends, some of the uh, opportunities, you know, kind of pretend you are an investor and think about, okay, what are some of the, the big opportunities out there that I can uniquely contribute to? 
either because you have a passion about it, you don't have to have an expertise. I like, I had no expertise about telecommunications uh, until I did Jackster, but I learned a lot and learned fast. And I surrounded myself with people who did have that domain expertise and subject matter experience, right? So you kind of want to step back, think about, okay, what are some of the big opportunities out there that I can contribute towards? Um, and that you feel passionate about. I, I know passion, perhaps maybe it's an overused word, but it is important. It is important for you to be missionary about what you are doing because entrepreneurship is hard. And unless you're like seriously mission driven, you're not going to be able to stick through the ups and downs of it. Um, it's just, uh, it's a, it's it's a roller coaster, and uh, chances are, your first startup is not going to make it. I mean, the, if you look at the statistics, uh, most startups don't make it. Um, and uh, it's funny because uh, you do have to have an optimism and conviction in your ability that you can do better than the statistics. But it is important also to keep the statistic in mind. Uh, so it's it's a it's it's a delicate balance between the two, not to be delusional, uh, but also not to be pessimistic, right? So there's just kind of be right there in the middle. So uh, that, that's it, that is a mindset adjustment, right? Um, so step back, see the see the bigger picture, have the right mindset, really uh, meditate on what it's appealing to you. Uh, to your heart that you want to spend the next five, 10 years of your life on um, and work really hard on. Um, and then I would say, this goes back to what I said earlier, talk to as many people as you can, have a lot of coffee and lunch breaks and Zoom sessions um, because every time you talk to someone, you'll come away more enriched and with a new perspective. And for instance, for Jackster, you know, the first six months, um, we we spend more time meeting and just discussing the idea with different people than we did actually coding or building anything, right? So it was a lot of just conversations and feedback. In fact, we we drastically changed the idea from what we had started with to what we launched to the public it was completely different based on all the feedback we gathered, uh, just in casual conversations, um, or just having concepts that uh, you can run by folks. Uh, so gather feedback. Um, and then once you have enough data points and enough conviction that gives you a sense that there is something there, then yes, then then quit your job and do it. Um, but a lot of entrepreneurs do take, take a take time. It, it's not like they quit their job and then think about, okay, what am I going to work on next? And I want to be an entrepreneur. They actually lay the foundation and groundwork um, before they, they make that final jump. So uh, I would say entrepreneurs tend to be actually very smart risk takers. They're not blind risk takers. Um, and people can use that something. Just because you're taking risks doesn't mean you're going to succeed at it. But if you take smart risks, then your chances are much higher. Tarash, and then a second question that clients often have that they have to kind of decide, are they going with the route of starting something small and then starting to generate some revenue, some profits, and then use that to build the business and own 100% of it, and then pass it over to the children someday maybe, or go another route and uh, find investors and do it faster. And in your book, by the way, you mentioned that about 75% of businesses that raise $1 million actually never able to even return that amount back to investors. So what would be your advice on that decision? Yes, yeah, so that is a really important decision. So, um, you know, perhaps it's a term that sometimes uh, you hear some investors use is like, are you a lifestyle business or are you a sort of a venture backed business? And it's not, it's less about lifestyle as in like going by the beach and uh, sipping margaritas, but more about is this something that you want to have the ultimate control and ultimate ownership and so that you can basically decide how fast you want to grow it and really um, uh, have a different trajectory than 
you know, if you have investors, they're part owners and you have a board and they have a strong say in where you take the company and you have an obligation to them to maximize the return on their investment. So it's no longer just about your passion and your mission, but also about uh, financial returns for your investors and stakeholders. So, um, you know, that is a very pivotal decision. Um, I would say businesses that can be immediately uh, cash flow positive uh, and have um, income uh, and sales and don't require a lot of investment in order to build a product or to build a user base. They tend to be much more in the life cycle, uh, lifestyle sorry, category. And then the ones that do need a huge upfront investment tend to be the ones that you need venture capital investors for, unless you're independently wealthy, but then even those who are independently wealthy, a lot of times they don't want to put all their money behind uh, Elon Musk, except that uh, he, he's a very unique individual. But um, most people prefer to have other investors involved. Now, you do get a lot of benefit actually from having investors. So my advice to a lot of entrepreneurs when they're thinking about this is that uh, when you're getting an investor, don't just think about it in terms of money. Think about it in terms of the relationship. And I'm going to sound like a broken record, I know, by the end of this uh, podcast. But but the the investor actually is like a team member. They're going to bring in a lot of value, hopefully, beyond just their checkbook, which is which is what then would set you up for success. So um, picking investors, like picking the, the first founding team members, you have to be very judicious about who you bring on board. Um, and sometimes maybe having the wrong investor is uh, worse than not having an investor at all. So um, that's just uh, a, a lot of general uh, thoughts on, on your question. Thank you, Tarash. And building on that, could you maybe share some of the key things to consider when selecting investors and when selecting co-founders? Yes. So, you know, uh, I'll go back to uh, perhaps uh, the investors I selected for my first startup. Um, uh, you know, it was uh, trying to emulate and do for Skype, uh, for, for mobile phones, what Skype did for computers, basically bring uh, that level of free communications to the mobile phone. So I actually went after Skype investors and said, hey, like you guys succeeded uh, with the, with the uh, desktop version. Do you want to do it on the mobile version? I could really use your expertise and lessons learned there. And luckily got one of them, uh, one of the early Skype investors to be an investor. And he was tremendously value add. Um, uh, you know, similarly um, in other areas, perhaps uh, one of the challenges that you feel as an entrepreneur is that your lack of operating experience. So you want to bring an investor that has the operating experience so you can learn from them. It could be domain expertise. It could be relationships that they have with an ecosystem where you would uh, want to get closer to. Um, uh, let's say, you know, you need a lot of retail distributors uh, to sell your product. Now, someone that sits on the boards of those as an investor would be phenomenal, right? So you want to think about what are the non-financial value adds that an investor brings and what are some of the gaps that you have uh, on the way to get to success, right? So start by having the end in mind and seeing what success looks like and then work backwards and say, okay, what, what, what needs to go right in order for me to be successful, to, to achieve that destination? And who are the people I need to have with me on this journey uh, so that I can be best positioned uh, to achieve that goal? And some of those people will, of course, be full-time team members. Others would be investors, board members, advisors, perhaps um, other, uh, uh, you know, professionals like lawyers and investment bankers etc that you hire along the way. Tarash and are there any red signs that you would recommend people to pay attention to when selecting co-founders and investors? Mm-hmm. Yes the red flags you know I you know as new entrepreneurs you tend to disregard your own uh, intuitions um, not that intuitions should always be the guide for everything um, because they could be misinformed, 
but I would pay attention to intuitions. And especially when it comes to style, to culture fit, um, I think intuitions can, uh, can be very powerful indicators. And uh, that's an area I would, uh, I would kind of do a gut check uh, uh, and uh, make sure that if you're uneasy or you know something someone said didn't quite sit right, don't just shove it under the rug actually pay attention to that poke on it and uh follow up perhaps you know you may wonder if someone has the right level of transparency or the right level of integrity that you're looking for in the co-founder investor you know go go deeper uh, have more more meetings with them and if you can have reference checks talk to other people for instance for an investor talk to other people they have invested in um, both successful ones and actually perhaps even the ones, the investments that didn't go well and understand how they behaved in those scenarios uh, when they were on the board. Um, uh, you know, uh, one thing that happens, unfortunately, is that many investors tend to be cheerleaders when times are great and tend to be downers when times are tough and um, like come down hard and become really exacting when times are tough for an entrepreneur. I feel like that's the opposite of <laughs> what uh, would be a recipe for success. You want investors who are tough on you and kind of check your blind spots where times are great, but then give you the operating freedom and the breathing room to figure things out when you're under tremendous stress as an entrepreneur. Um, so things like that, those dynamics, you really want to understand them before you either, uh, you know, accept their investment, put them on your board, or um, make them part of the team. Thank you, Taraj. So let's say someone decides, they listen to our conversation, they like what you said, and they say, okay, I need investors, I want to have a huge impact, I don't have time for my grandchildren to have an impact with the business that I started on 100%. So they're looking for investors. They read your book. In the book, you say that you need to start thinking about exit from the beginning. But there is a signaling problem when it comes to investors. What do they do with this? What will be your advice? Yes, yeah, a great question. And the signaling problem is as follows. A lot of investors are attracted to entrepreneurs who are mission-driven and who are brave and courageous and they're willing to just fight the fight and are resilient, right? So, so those are the qualities that every investor is looking for. Um, now, if you talk to them about your exit strategy prematurely or without the right context, they may think that you're in it not for the mission, but you're in it to make a quick buck. So you're kind of building to flip or building to sell, which is not the right mindset for, for a, a you know, successful uh, scaled startup to have. Um, so that is the signaling problem, right? Without setting the right conditions, you may come across as someone that you really aren't, but just because you're speaking like that person, <laughs> the investors may interpret that you are. Um, so to avoid that signaling problem, my advice is to, first of all, emphasize the mission, talk about the mission, make sure the investors are on board with the big picture strategy. Once that alignment is established, then talk about, okay, well, what are the risks in executing that strategy? What are the things that can help executing that strategy? Um, and think about realistic scenarios. And, and once you get into that, then talk about, okay, well, sounds like, uh, you know, I need to also have a plan B exit strategy in case X, Y, and Z don't happen or the, go the way we want. In fact, if we have some organically grown relationships, like partnerships, et cetera, they can help accelerate the ultimate accomplishment of the mission. So, you know, um, investors like, lo love entrepreneurs that are in love with their mission. So if you show that an exit strategy 
can be conducive to the achievement of the mission, the ultimate goal that you have, then, then, then you open up the space to have a dialogue around that. Otherwise, the investors will shut that down. Uh, it's like, why, why are you talking to me about your exit uh, before we've even talked about what your long-term vision and mission is and what makes it possible? So that context setting is critical. Taraj, and will your advice be, I guess it will be similar when it comes to communicating to your team? In many ways, it is similar. And, uh, you, know, um, you know, to me, uh, we are really talking about the leadership team, the, the, the folks that are going to be intimately involved in all the major decisions for a business. Um, they need to understand that you as the founder, as the entrepreneur, you are fully bought into your mission as well, and that uh, you're committed to executing this mission. But above all, that you're committed to an open-minded to, to doing what is best for the company, for its employees, for its customers, for its investors. So it's a, it's a pretty big responsibility. And the more people appreciate the nuance of your position and the competing priorities that you're, uh, you, you have to kind of balance, the, the more empathy they would have for you and your decisions, you want to bring them along the journey. You don't want to like surprise people uh, at any time, especially your leadership team. You want to bring them along on the journey that says, hey, look, we're building these relationships because perhaps five years down the road, we may be in a position that we want to sell or they, they may be trying to get into this market. And if we don't have the relationship, they would basically pick another startup and become our competitors um, and uh, we would be kind of left in the dark. So, so you want to bring folks along why you are doing certain things, but I'll also make sure that they understand that you're not in it to sell immediately or kind of encourage that kind of uh, mindset because that can be very dangerous. Again, uh, the, the thinking should be, what do we do? to build a long-term sustainable business. And actually what you do in that, when you really think hard about that, is the same thing that you would do to build a business that's very attractive to potential strategic acquirers. Because no acquirer wants to buy a failing business. <laughs> they want to they buy a business that has a real uh, structure and foundation um, that they can pull fuel on the fire but you need to get the fire going. That is very true. So we spoke about starting from the beginning, uh, focusing on exit strategy. Any specific steps you would recommend? I know that it is in depth covered in your book, but anything you would like to share here? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, the, the, the very first step is to, of course, get this messaging, get, get an understanding of why an exit strategy is important and uh, having that kind of alignment among the leadership team, that getting the, cultivating the right mindset, I call it, is important in the beginning. The next step is then having that strategy offsite. And I have dedicated a part of the book to just how do you organize such a strategy offsite? from details such as where do you go to what do you put on the agenda? What do you do in preparation up to it? Um, how do you conduct certain brainstorming sessions that can tap into the power of divergent thinking and convergent thinking of your team? So divergent being the, their creativity, but then convergent being their analytic reasoning. So kind of bringing it all together. Um, what are some of the topics that are uh, ripe for discussion in those sessions. And then I also talk about how do you document this? Because if it's not written down, it doesn't exist, right? A lot of times uh, meetings can be quite effective, but they're not productive <laughs> because uh, no one bothers to write down the conclusions of the meeting. So, um, uh, and then when you capture those, what is the right framework? And I actually propose a simple template for what an exit strategy could look like. I call it the exit strategy canvas. It's got nine building blocks. And uh, so kind of, um, I, I, I become a little prescriptive here, but just as a way to 
have a default position for people to start from, but they don't have to exactly follow everything. Uh, you know, it, it should be customized to the unique needs and industry and position of every, every startup. But at least I found that having a starting point is better than to come up with something from scratch. Taraj, and what are your thoughts on how open-minded should entrepreneurs be on as they having this uh, conversations about exit planning, how open-minded they should be to opportunities where acquirer becomes a partner, so potential partnership, <laughs> or where acquirer becomes an investor? Yes. Um, I, I see all of those as great opportunities to build relationships because ultimately an acquirer becomes interested in you because they believe in you, they trust you, they have confidence in you and your team and your product. So what better way to build that without having to rush it through a, a partnership or an investment relationship. Now you have to be careful about the terms of those partnerships and investment relationships so that this, you don't inadvertently um, prevent others from being interested in you because you, you got the, into this relationship. But you know, savvy acquirers recognize that and they don't wanna tie you down to, to, to that extreme. Um, so it's good to have legal counsel and other experienced entrepreneurs involved when you are in those conversations. Um, definitely uh, something to encourage, I would say, to uh, welcome. Don't be uh, scared by it. Uh, don't shut it down. Think about all the benefits that can come from it. Um, and then structure those relationships in a way that you get the most out of it. Um, if you make relationship building uh, the priority, then a lot of these things become clearer. Um, now, some entrepreneurs worry that, well, you know, if I reveal too much, then I may not be attractive anymore to this uh, acquirer. Well, the truth is, sooner or later, they will find that out about you. You much rather want to know it now then, uh, you know, once there's a term sheet signed, everybody's excited, then they do diligence and they find out, ah, this is not a company we want to acquire. That is terrible. Um, so, so there's no hiding the ball. Um, truth will actually help you um, advance. And, um, and also what you want to find out is truth about them. Who is this acquire? What are the things that are important to them? So that, uh, that gives you power, that gives you leverage, negotiation leverage, if and when the time comes for an acquisition. So it, you should see that uh, as an entrepreneur, you should see this as a two-way street. It's not like the acquirer gets to invest in you and all they see is your, uh, under your hood, but you want it to be an opportunity for a healthy exchange of information um, and get to know each other better. Taraj, and as you have observed many M&A transactions in your career, what surprised you? What did you not expect? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, one thing I didn't expect, and, and I got to really appreciate that when I was on the acquirer seat at GoDaddy for seven years, was how long it really takes for the courtship. And sometimes we even have one attempt at an acquisition, it doesn't happen for various reasons, it comes back in a year or two, and then it happens. So it actually, like I, I, I did a survey, it took more than a year for, on average for us from the first time we had met an entrepreneur to, to consummate an acquisition. And we did you know, over 20 acquisitions in my 10 years there. Um, so uh, it, it does take a long time and the sooner entrepreneurs get familiarized and build the relationships with their potential acquirers, the better their chances are of actually uh, being there. The, the thing is that an acquisition happens when three things converge. One is there's a willing buyer, there's a willing seller, and there's a set of terms that the parties agree on. And for these three conditions to come together, it takes a lot of work. You know, you may be a willing seller, 
but the acquirers may not be willing buyers. Or they may be willing buyers, but not at the terms that you would be willing to sell. So uh, it takes a lot of cultivation and work to bring everyone and, and converge these things together. Um, that, those were some of the surprising things I found. You know, I, I thought that if you put up a for sale sign on your startup, acquires start uh, coming and finding their way out of the woodworks. But lo and behold, they have their day jobs. <laughs> you know, the management team of an acquirer is doing their own thing. They're not going to change everything and prioritize your deal just because you're willing to sell. So you have to figure out how you're to time things, how to be on their roadmap and how to make sure your willingness to sell and their desire to buy sort of converge. It's a lot of art uh, rather than science. Taraj, you mentioned the importance of building relationships many times throughout our conversation today. Yes. What advice would you give to people to become better at building lasting win-win relationships? Yes. Uh, you know, there's actually, I've dedicated a, a few chapters to this in the book as well, but I would say start small and do incremental improvements. Start small, as small as just like in the coffee shop that you go in the morning or in the elevator, just say hello. <laughs> just, just get to know the people, the fellow human beings that you bump against during the day and just sort of train yourself. Now, some people are natural extroverts. They're immediately great at this but for the 90 percent rest of us i would say become comfortable in approaching and talking to people and to uh, getting to know personal details about them revealing being vulnerable about yourself you know as, as small as getting to know someone's name you know start there um that 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 would be the starting point of course to build strategic relationships, et cetera, it takes much longer. It takes repeated interactions. So with business partners, figure out a cadence of actually interacting with them. You know, it's not just enough to send a LinkedIn note and say, hey, I found your interest. You have a very similar background to mine and we have a lot of common connections. I thought we should connect. It's a great starting point. Although uh, I suggest better LinkedIn messages than that. Um, but once you do get that connection, initial connection, it's a weak tie. How do you make that a stronger tie, right? And so that, that strength comes from repeated interactions, from a trust you build. And, you know, familiarity itself builds trust. Uh, so you want to have a regular cadence. Um, even if, again, you're not interested in doing a deal today or a acquisition or anything like that just get to know the person get to and you know one of the ways you can get to know them is by sharing information you know everyone wants to know information so if you have insights that you can share and volunteer to them then i appreciate it and that builds your profile as an entrepreneur it adds something to that relationship it is a starting point to a, for a win-win now you may not have an immediate uh, return on what you're sharing but over time the return comes from the trust and the relationship that you're building. Also, um, it is important to know who to approach. Uh, you know, big companies have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees sometimes. So who is the right person to approach? So that takes some work, some research, uh, understanding, um, you know, how does the, or what is the org structure? What are the business units that um, tend to have uh, the best fit with what you're doing? And then who are the leaders of those business units? Get to know them. A lot of people start with corp dev and biz dev people. I have been a corp dev and biz dev executive uh, many years. Uh, I would say most of my life, perhaps. Um, most of my career life. Um, and I can tell you this, that is probably not the best starting point. It is a starting point, but I would say the decision makers are the operating executives, the people who are in charge of PNL, in charge of um, headcount resources, um, uh, you know, the 
corp dev folks and the biz dev folks are in a way like cupids. Uh, they they kind of have to set up the right uh, setting, but the actual decision makers are elsewhere in the organization. So um, uh, you don't want to just fall in love with Cupid. <laughs> you want to also get to know your uh, the real intended. Very true. Trash, and in the beginning of our discussion, I think I mentioned that we will speak a little bit about your exciting work that you're doing now as Chief Operating Officer at Surf Robotics. And you have this sidewalk, tiny, adorable robots I may have heard you mentioning that they kind of a, a mix of a minion and the Wally. <laughs> so maybe you can speak a little bit about that because I know it will be interesting to many of our listeners. Yes, absolutely. And uh, maybe I'll take a step back. You know, uh, the origin of Serve Robotics, uh, it was actually a project that started within Postmates. Uh, a very good friend of mine, an amazing entrepreneur and technologist and visionary um, friend um, uh, whom I have known for many years. And I convinced to move from Vancouver to Silicon Valley uh, was the head of this project. And, and, the, and the way he got to Postmates actually is a funny side detour, but uh, perhaps interesting to your listeners. Him and I, um, when he was an EIR at, a, at Pair VC, the venture fund I'm affiliated with, um, him and I started on a project, kind of co-founded a startup uh, that uh, had to do with uh, smart food selection, um, menu selection using AI. And uh, we kind of uh, went around and started gathering feedback. As I was mentioning, you have to kind of talk to a lot of potential partners and others. And one of the people we talked to was Postmates. And Postmates liked the idea and him, Ali Kashani, so much that they actually acquired uh, that, that project, that startup. So and that was the origin of him joining Postmates. And then he became the head of Postmates special projects, Postmates X. And since he had a background and PhD in robotics and uh, LIDAR and AI, uh, he immediately thought of whether robots could alleviate some of the pain points that Postmates had. Postmates is a food delivery company uh, like DoorDash. and Uber Eats. And so um, they started experimenting with robots. And it wasn't the cute robot you see today in the beginning. It was something hacked together like a science project. Um, But then they iterated and they experimented. And within a couple of years, so the project started in 2017, 2019, they had this cute robot. Uh, So they went through a lot of iterations. And um, it's called Serve. Uh, so serve robot uh, went on the streets of LA and started doing delivery real deliveries from restaurants to us on the sidewalk from restaurants to customers. Um, in fact, they did tens of thousands of deliveries. Um, Postmates got acquired by Uber, and then um, uh, during that transaction, uh, actually prior to that transaction, the team wanted to spin out the robotics division to be an independent company because the opportunity uh, that uh, that these robots were addressing was far bigger than actually one company or even any one vertical could could, uh, service. So, um, because once you have these robots doing deliveries, they could deliver anything that just doesn't have to be just food, could be grocery, could be medicine, could be other things, parcel, it could be, anything that you can imagine. And then uh, uh, why just do it for one company? It could be, they, they could be doing it for everybody. So um, that was the logic for spinning it out. Uh, Postmates, I agreed to it, but Postmates got acquired by Uber. So that was put on hold for a little bit. Once that acquisition completed, Uber, I also agreed. So Serve came out um, and became an independent company in uh, early 2021. Um, so that's when I joined. Um, so now I've been with Sir for a year and a half now. Um, and it was a, it was, I was always wanting to be with Ali and do something big together. And I, I'm just so grateful that this all came together. It sounds very exciting. I'm looking forward to see one. I, I'm going to be watching out for them <laughs> in LA. Thank you. 
Yes, well, we are in the Hollywood and uh, West Hollywood areas today, and we're expanding more and more. So um, we're not just going to be just in LA, but we're going to be in uh, you know uh, many other big cities. So uh, watch watch out for us. Yes, uh, and we are um, very much aligned with the small businesses and the cities because we make we bring down the cost of delivery by using this autonomous robotics technology. Uh, it's a lot safer than having cars do these deliveries. Um, and it's greener, less congestion, uh, less safety um, risk uh, for the cities. So um, we are very excited. Definitely. And Tarash, what is the vision for this adorable robot? Yes. So I mentioned, uh, you know, our, our big mission is to be a, um, uh, you know, the future of uh, sustainable technologies. We want to actually be our delivering a sustainable future. That's our mission. And uh, it starts with food delivery. But we, we believe that this, this technology can, can be applied to many domains. So we are really introducing robots for the first time in mass scale, autonomous robots to city environments, to environments where they are interacting with people in real time. You know, traditionally, AMRs, automatic mobile, uh, autonomous mobile robots were uh, limited to factory settings. So very constrained environments where people and real estate had to be configured to, uh, to the robot. Now we are, uh, we are in a different domain. We're bringing these robots outdoor and now the robots have to adapt to the external environment and the people, the dynamic interactions with people. We have even come across boats uh, on the sidewalks of LA. So uh, the, the, the outdoor environment is a pretty wild place. And these robots are, are figuring it out, how to navigate them safely and efficiently. This sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to see where you guys are going to take it. Thank you. We are close to wrapping up our wonderful conversation. The next question I want to ask you is one of my favorite questions. So you already shared kind of a, a little bit of an answer to this question when you mentioned that one of the things you learned was how important relationships are. But maybe you will have some other thoughts that you would like to share. So the question is, what are two, three aha moments, realizations you had in the last few years, so it can be decades, that were transformative for your career and life? Oh, absolutely. So yes, the relationships would definitely be on the top of that list. Um, the other one is actually reflecting on the definition of success and um, really understanding what that means, not just for you, but for your startup, for any business, any association that you are with, really understanding what does success really mean for us? And, and almost uh, I have this kind of framework where I say, okay, well, what do we have to believe to be true for success to come, come about once we have defined it? And then what are the risks on our path to get there? And then I cross from those risks, what are the mitigating steps we can take to, to account for that? Um, so I, I kind of almost in every project, every startup um, that I engage with, I have kind of stuck with that framework, you know, um, and that's something that has evolved over the past 10 years as kind of one of my go-to uh, things that I do. So start with success and end in mind, and then uh, uh, identify what has to go right, what are the risks, and what are the mitigants uh, to go with it. Um, uh, and then the other, the other one kind of is maybe a hack, a tip, a uh, life hack, uh, what you call it, the importance of calendar, <laughs> um, you know, as I'm, I don't know, maybe as I'm growing older, what it is, but if it's not scheduled on my calendar, it doesn't exist. Uh, so, um, and our calendars truly reveal our priorities. Um, so if you want to know what your priorities are, just reflect back on your calendar and see, okay, uh, do I have the right priorities in my mind and what I'm actually doing or not? So um, uh, don't ignore that uh, little calendar there. Thank you, Taraj. This is very helpful. And then another thing I want to ask you, and I often ask our guests, we often speak to our clients about what are you going to do on Monday morning at 8 a.m. differently based on what you just 
learned, let's say, in a course. We always try to make it practical so people can actually get results from something they are learning. Based on our conversation, what would you like people to do differently tomorrow at 8 a.m.? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I really encourage people to actually get out there and to experiment and see their ideas uh, out there in action rather than overthinking things. Um, you know, reality, as Peter Drucker said, uh, never stands still too long. Things are dynamic, things are changing. And the more we just sit back and analyze um, that, that gets more and more in, in the way of action. So the way, for instance, we did our robots, uh, it's just, just put them out there, put them on the sidewalk. We have actually a company value. We call it find truth on the sidewalk because truly um, the truth is out there, literally out there. Um, and you have, to, you have to go there and experiment. If you want to be in the business of innovation, experimentation is the, is the path there. Um, and there's no substitute for it. So figure out simple experiments, anything, no matter what you want to do, try to make it a, into a small experiment and run that experiment and see and learn from it and then iterate. So that, that, that would be, that's, that's an advice I give myself, my kids, uh, my teams all the time. I love this. I often tell clients that life often feels like you're going up the dark stairs. You have a light flashlight and you only can see the first step, but you know what the step is. So just take it yes. and then you will see the next one. And we get so sure. information once we start taking action. And then even if we took the wrong turn, at least we get a lot more information and we can make better decisions after that. That's absolutely true. Yes, I agree. Trash, this is a great place to end this session. Before we do that, do you have anything else you would like to add or share? Uh, no, I really actually enjoyed this conversation. Uh, time flew. Thank you so much for the great questions. Uh, and, uh, you know, I hope uh, your listeners also reach out to me if they have any feedback. I can be found on LinkedIn uh, pretty easily um, uh, or uh, Twitter, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the, the website for my upcoming book, exitpath.net. Um, and, uh, you know, to find out more about this, you can even go on Amazon and pre-order it, which I would very much appreciate. Great. Thank you very much, Tarash. It was so amazing to have you with us today. It was such a pleasant, wonderful conversation. And you're such a great person. I could immediately see it before we even started recording. So such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. The feelings are certainly mutual uh, and I look forward to more interactions. Thank you. Thank you, Tarash. So for everyone listening or watching, you can check out Taraj's book. It's called Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame. And I will see you guys next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.